it's good to hear you all singing. It's just, it's always a blessing to me. Uh, I know I remark on that regularly, but it really does, uh, I don't know, it's just, there's something about it. It's just wonderful. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 8. And all the people who lived through three almost hour-long sermons said, Amen, let's get back to Matthew. Uh, so we just finished our series in, that old te- in the Old Testament, talking about all the various covenants in the Old Testament and how they all point to Jesus and the need for this Messiah to come. So now that we're jumping back into Matthew, I hope that you can ap- appreciate these stories of Jesus more and more and gain a new depth of knowledge and love for Christ in all that he has said and done. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, if you're turning in the Blue Bibles, is on page 474, if you're looking for that. But a quick reminder of the book of Matthew so far. We started with the genealogy, and we saw in Matthew 1 how Matthew works through the genealogy, pointing out how Jesus fulfills all the promises that God made in the Old Testament. He shows how Jesus came through the line of Abraham to be that offspring who would bless all of the nations of the earth. Uh, He showed how Jesus came through the line of David so that he could be that promised Davidic king, the one that they were always looking for, that they started to call the Messiah. Or in Greek, that's the same word for Messiah is the Christ. And so Matthew is leading his readers through this to understand all of our hopes and dreams, all of the things that God promised through the Old Testament that we spent a long time uh, working through, seven weeks through the Old Testament to bring us to this point. But imagine seven weeks compared to centuries of waiting for this. And now he's saying, Jesus is that promised one. He is the one who was promised far before. And then Matthew goes on. He um, spends a little bit of time talking about Jesus's miraculous birth. But then he talks about Jesus's cousin, John, John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Because the Old Testament prophets were always pointing forward to that Davidic king, to the Messiah, to the suffering servant who was to come. And John was the last one who could point forward to him. And so John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing forward to Jesus. And uh, Jesus goes to his cousin, John, to be baptized. And in this scene, we see the Spirit of God descend like a dove. And then we see hear a voice from heaven declare, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So then Jesus begins his ministry. He goes and he starts, there's a, just not a lot talking about it, but it says he began ministering in Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. And then Matthew takes a significant portion, three chapters, to talk about this first sermon that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And that was Matthew chapters five through seven. And so on this then, in this, Jesus goes up the mountains, up the mountain to proclaim the teachings of God, just like Moses went up the mountain to get the teachings of God. But instead of bringing down stone tablets, Jesus himself is the one who's proclaiming the teachings of God. It is not a secondhand knowledge through the prophet. It is Jesus himself proclaiming this. In the end of Matthew chapter seven, the Sermon on the Mount, it ends with this observation from Matthew. Chapter seven, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. 
So now, let's read Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 together. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the blessing of all of your word. And God, uh, we pray that we would be blessed by the proclamation of your word this morning, that we would love and honor you by being obedient to your word and that we might be changed and our community might be changed because of our uh, gospel light that we carry with us. Father, grant us the humility to bow before you, to kneel before you and cry out for your healing touch. Shut my mouth where I may speak out a turn. And may we be blessed by your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this next chapter, is, it's a new section of Matthew, really, because he spent that time to focus on the Sermon on the Mount and on his teachings, and now we see that Jesus comes down from the mountain. That teaching series is over, and he is starting a new section. Really, in context, what, you're, what we're going to be looking at, I almost went for 18 verses this morning instead of four, and I was like, now nah, we all need a break. Uh, and because there's three stories of healing, one right after another, that show different aspects of who Christ is and how and his power and the power and authority that he has over different things. So we're just going, we're going to split those up, and we're going to take our time to work through these and understand what the Lord has for us through these words. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, and this is actually the identical wording in the Greek as uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the exact same wording as when Moses came down from the mountain. And it's likely that Matthew is trying to point and say, Jesus fulfills the type, kind of the, the mold that you were shown in Moses. He is this great leader bringing you the law the teachings of God. And he had large crowds continuing to follow him after that teaching. And then in verse two, we see that this leper is coming to Jesus. Now, this leper comes and he kneels before Jesus. Lepers had no business being near the rest of the society in this time frame. They were ostracized from society and their families. They had to be outside of the camp. This is in Leviticus when they first were talking about this, when the laws about lepers were set up. They had to wear torn clothes and they had to leave their hair messy. They couldn't fix up their hair. They couldn't put oil in it as they would do in that time to uh, show youth and beauty and vibrancy. And they had to shout out to people as they were walking, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine that? The shame of this disease. And leprosy in many ways especially in the Old Testament, it's a symbol of the pollution of sin. It was unclean. And so even just touching a leper then made you unclean. Anyone who had touched a leper had to go through these cleansing ceremonies 
in the te- before they could come into the temple to sacrifice, before they could bring their sacrifice to atone for their sins, they then had to be made clean because of touching the leper. And they risked getting the disease themselves. Leprosy, if you don't know, it's just, uh, it basically covered all sorts of skin diseases. It was very clear that leprosy was happening because sometimes it would eat away at the skin uh, until limbs would practically fall off. But other times it could just be a practical skin disease that would turn the hair white. Uh, and they, all of this is talked about in Leviticus to some extent. So the whole point of this is you didn't touch lepers. You stayed away from them. And the healing of lepers, though, in the Old Testament is considered a messianic act. There are only two people in the Old Testament who are recorded to have had any act of healing leprosy. And one, it was Moses in Numbers 12 and Elisha, the great prophet in 2 Kings 5. They were the only ones who had any semblance of healing lepers. And they didn't do it through a healing touch. With Elisha, he told uh, Naaman to go bathe in the Jordan River, right? He didn't touch him. But this leper here, he's bold. And he breaks the law by approaching Jesus and kneeling before him in an act of submission and deep respect. He kneels before Jesus. And he has complete trust in Jesus' healing power. In verse 2, we see the man's humility and faith that we should consider to be remarkable because this is early in Jesus' ministry. This is the first recorded miracle in the book of Matthew. And he has the faith to come before and kneel before Jesus because in his mind, in his understanding, Jesus has the power to heal him. The only question is if Jesus wants to heal him. And when he says, if you will, he's practically saying, if you want, or if you desire, if it's your desire, if you have uh, like NIV or some of the other more um, other modern English translations, they might have translated it a little bit more than what the ESV does. The ESV stays close to it because the meaning is what your will is. Like when we pray, our Father in heaven, thy will be done. It is like that. It, if you will, if it is your desire, if it is your, what you desire for me, for my life, you can make me clean. And he doesn't simply desire healing. He desires, like King David in Psalm 1, after he was confronted with his sin, to be made clean. So then in verse 3, we see that Jesus touches the man. And Jesus' incredible compassion is evident because he stretches out his hand to touch the man. And he didn't have to because he could have healed him with a healing word. We see that in the next verses that we'll be talking about next week. All he has to do is say that the person's going to be healed and they're going to be healed. He didn't have to touch the leper, but he did. And how wonderful it is to have such a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, as it says in Hebrews 4. Because Jesus knew the man's plight. In Mark, it says he is touched with compassion for the man. There is a, uh, a film called Risen. And I'm, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I'm not necessarily recommending it one way or the other. But it's kind of almost like an investigation over what happened to Jesus' body by the Romans. It's a drama. Uh, and they find, like, oh, Jesus actually is alive. But there's a scene in it where there's a leper who comes forward, and they're chasing him off. They're you know, beating him, trying to chase him off because he's hungry. He wants some food. And in this scene, Jesus takes the bread. He goes over and kneels beside the leper, touches it, and says, here, brother. 
have some food. And the man looks up and says, no one touches me. And that scene, like that, that was, that's the one scene I remember from that film because that's the one scene that's like, oh, wow. Like you never, you don't think about that. We don't think about that in our time. But this, these are people, the lepers are people who had never been touched, who were, were, if they had been, it had been long periods of time. People were afraid of touching them. And yet Jesus came before him, knelt uh, to the man kneeling before him and touches him. And in touching the leper, we see how much Jesus has empathy and sensitivity toward the man's wretched state. So then, in the laws, to touch something that's unclean, it makes you unclean. So is Jesus then unclean? Certainly not. Because the uncleanness of the leper was not transferred to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is clean enough that his cleanliness is transferred to the unclean person. And so instead of Jesus being unclean, the man was made clean by Jesus's cleanliness. Instead of the transfer of uncleanness coming through the touch, the transfer of Jesus's righteous cleanliness is transferred to the wretched leper. And then Jesus proclaims the healing of this man uh, as we continue in verse three. To that healing touch is added the powerful command, be clean. And the effect is immediate. It says immediately he was healed. And the word translated here as cleaned uh, typically refers to this unceremonial, uh, this ceremonial uncleanness, but it's also translated often as healed. Because the disease of leprosy was so tied to cleanliness, the man recognized, I need the ceremonial cleanliness, and I get that through being healed. And Jesus offered him both the cleanliness and the healing. But what you make us marvel just as much is not simply saying that Jesus can and does heal him, but the statement of Jesus that says, I will. And it's not the, I'm going to do it. It is a, I desire for you to be clean. I want you to be clean. Be clean. And so Jesus then gives a command to the healed man in verse four. He says, say nothing to anyone. And this kind of seems like a strange command, right? You would imagine that Jesus wants people to know that he is there, that he has come to save them. Uh, but Mark opens this up a little bit further than, Jesus, than Matthew does. And he focuses on this in a lot of different ways, but it's not that important to the story. But it's generally understood that Jesus said this to avoid the misunderstanding that the Davidic king that had been promised, the Messiah, who he was, would come as a conquering king like David. He's trying to avoid that misunderstanding and trying to avoid them jumping onto this and saying, we're going to rise up against the Romans. We're going to be free but rather because they did not fully understand. They didn't read the prophets enough to recognize that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming as the suffering servant that had been proclaimed in the prophets, not as a conquering Davidic king. What's really interesting, especially in the ways that a lot of uh, kind of groups of Christians nowadays talk, the healing was not conditional based on the leper's obedience. Because uh, in Mark's gospel, we see that he goes and he, he ignores it. He tells everyone. He's excited. I've been healed. Jesus healed me. Jesus of Nazareth. You guys have to come and see this man. It's incredible. He has brought me cleanliness. And too often, 
We hear those who are promising healing based on our faith, that if we doubt it for even a second, that we're going to lose that healing. And this is a really convenient way for them to take the blame off of themselves when your supposed healing wears off. Because what they're really doing is they're using manipulation tactics to try to convince you that something is actually happening. They, uh, they always use big shows with lots of emotions and big declarations and like they're waving their coats around, right? Have you seen Benny Hinn and any of the stuff that he does? It's all a big show. And the reason why it feels so foreign is because it should be foreign to us as Christians. They use that big show with lots of emotions. And this is why also music is a vital component of these services. They play specific songs. They repeat them over and over because they are using that music to manipulate your emotions. It's a vital component of these so-called healing services. Imagine one of these services without music. Imagine, let's say, an altar call at a revival without music as well. They're using that to manipulate and try to force specific things to come out. Now, I'm working on a paper for my class that we can talk about this more later if you're interested in it. But uh, I'm going to continue on. The methods used by them are manipulative and they are identical to the methods used by illusionists and hypnotists. Just with a bent to trick those who claim to be Christians. You, there are illusionists who are atheists who have then trained someone up in how to pretend to be a street healer, street preacher. And then this guy who has been trained up in these illusion tactics goes out onto the streets and has the exact same results as the other people. The supposed leg lengthenings, the supposed uh, warmth going down the spine. If you condition people to expect something like that, they're going to feel it. And there are more and more studies are coming out about this. And so many Christians have been tricked by charlatans. We shell out millions of dollars to these charlatans to get this adrenaline rush that convinces us we're healed for long enough to earn them more money. Everyone else sees that and is like, wow, they've been healed. Now I need to sow my seed so that I can be healed too. And then just to find out when we get home that the healing didn't stick. And then to question how we didn't have enough faith or obedience for Jesus to heal us forever. Do you see why this is destructive to people's faith? In stark contrast to these false prophets, when we see this leper in Mark's gospel account go and tell the people freely what happened, he didn't lose the healing. He still uh, went before the priest and was declared clean. He directly disobeyed the sovereign son, and yet that healing was not taken away from him. Jesus is so much better than what these false prophets are trying to tell us. So he tells him, go and show the priest that you are healed at the end of our section in verse four. And in the Sermon on the Mount from the previous chapters, Jesus had declared, he made it clear, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So in this story then, Jesus is showing that he means that. He tells the leper to follow the law, to go before the priest, to be inspected and to be declared clean. And so as we read this passage together, as we think about this and study this, there are implications for us as followers of Jesus today. In the story, Jesus wants to keep his messianic office quiet from people. But Matthew 
expects his readers to recognize the reality of that messianic authority. And here in this text, it becomes a major theme that after the sermon, when Matthew gives an account of all the miracles that Jesus had done, that all of creation bows before the Christ. Nothing can stand in his way. Not sickness, not storms, not death even. And so as we're moving into this, we're going to see time, oh, like 10 times repeated, that Jesus has authority over all of these things and that that curse of sin is being reversed by Jesus. Praise God. That Jesus is Lord of all and all of creation follows his command. So one of the questions we can ask because of this is, what is true faith? True faith does not demand that Jesus fulfill the request, but rather surrenders to the knowledge that Jesus can do so if he wishes. And the, this, Olymp, this leper is an example of true faith. And it prepares us for the centurion in the next story that's coming up. In the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, the centrality of prayer is understanding that we are to surrender our will to God's will. And it's not just an unending series of self-centered demands. God, do this. God, do this. God, heal this person. God, please do this. Do this. But rather it is, whatever your will, may it be done. Lord, lead us. Make us more into your image. Lord, may your name be glorified in all the earth. These are the prayers that we are supposed to be praying, more so than these self-centered, just when we pray, are we just praying about the things that are immediately in front of us? Or are we praying for God to be glorified in all the earth? Are we praying large, big prayers, knowing that God deserves to be glorified in all the earth? Are we praying in accordance to what we have been shown in Scripture? That is what true faith is. We're told this. That is this understanding. If you will, if you want. That phrase, on its own, just shows the great confidence that the leper has, that Jesus has the ability to heal him. True faith is not about not ever having questions. True faith is believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will act in accordance with who he says he is. But it's never demanding that he act a certain way that makes sense to us. God, give me this or I'm going to run away from you. Or God, I declare that I'm going to have that car. This is why the prosperity gospel is so anti-gospel. It's never about us having power over God to get him to do things for us. It is always about surrendering to him and having faith that he is who he says he is. That is what faith is. And it took me forever to figure that out. It took until after that like brain surgery. Like finally, I was just like, God, whatever you will, may it be done. I started ending my prayers with that. And it changed me. It changed it from me being like, God, I want to understand. I want to do these things. It's God, I don't understand, but I know you're good. So whatever your will, may it be done. That faith changes us. It's not about what we can get. It's about who God is. And so often, uh, this is a rabbit trail, but I'm going to follow it. Um, So often, as we look at our lives, as we look at the promise of heaven, 
We're so content just to have heaven and avoid hell. But the true goal that we should have is to be redeemed to God. Not heaven, not paradise, but God himself. That is what we should desire. There's a a song that I've been wrestling with about whether we should have it for a song in the month or not. But it, it just declares the goodness of the gospel is God himself. It's not what he can get us. It's not any of those things. And then it ends with a lot, with a verse talking about the goodness of the gospel is God himself, not streets of gold. Heaven is not the gospel. God is. He is the good news. And the second thing that we can see from this is that Jesus is filled with compassion for the unfortunate. It's, it's incredible. Though Matthew like, keeps out this word that he was filled with compassion that's in Mark uh, Mark 1 is where you would find the story because Mark gets right into the meat of things and he just blasts through all the storyline. If you want to read a gospel quickly, Mark is your book to go to. He, he uses immediately and suddenly a lot. Anyways, sorry, getting back on track. His actions, though Matthew keeps out that word compassion, the actions of Jesus clearly show his concern and care for the man. This has often been called the love hermeneutic. That is, Jesus's concern for people so outweighed the legal prescriptions of Leviticus, such as touching a leper makes you unclean, that he ignored them in order to meet the need of his people. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus is breaking the moral law, but rather that the ceremonial laws don't apply to Jesus because uh, to be made clean, you have to be unclean. Jesus had no need to be made clean for he was the source of cleanness. And this is what we will see to be a hallmark of Jesus's ministry, that through Jesus, God is going to write all barriers that are between peoples, and he is going to vindicate those who have been downtrodden. So brothers and sisters, for you, for some of us, we have faced some really difficult things. Some, many of you have faced much more difficult things than I have. And still, yet, in many ways, we uh, still have yet any of us, the worst of any of us in this church, has still yet to see how bad it can truly get. Because we've been blessed to be in America. We really have been. Uh But we need to understand that when we have been wronged, we need to have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. If someone sins against us, if... Uh, maybe we loan money to someone and then they just completely default on it. Maybe we treat someone with love and kindness and they treat us with rejection and hatred. All of these things will be made right by Christ. And it is not us to hold on to vengeance, to be like, well, Jesus is going to get you when he comes back. No. It is for us to let it go and say, Jesus, I trust you. And I trust that you will make it right. All through Revelation, it says, those who will endure will be given great reward. And again, it's not the reward that should drive our endurance. It is God himself that should be driving our endurance. But this is encouraging to know that he hasn't forgotten about us. There's nothing worse than uh, working a job or for your family or anything. Like anything that you are striving towards to have nothing at the end to show for it and to know that nobody's going to appreciate it, that nobody's going to recognize any of it. And yet Jesus is proclaiming that he will right all of these wrongs, that he recognizes it and that he sees it. 
And that there's zero need for us to become bitter because, about, because of these things. But rather, we can rest in knowing Jesus is who he says he is. And the final thing that we should recognize in this section is that Jesus fulfills the law. So in one sense, Jesus is completely faithful to the Torah, having the leper fulfill its demands before he continues on his way and rejoins society. It's not like, you're clean, you have no need to go before the priest because I've made you clean and that's really good. He's like, no, we're following the laws of the land. But at the same time, Jesus ignores that command about not touching the leper. And yet somehow Jesus isn't rendered unclean. And D.A. Carson says it really well. He says, in one sense, Jesus does submit to the law. He puts himself under the ordinances that God laid out uh, back at the beginning of Israel's history. But the result of this is startling. The law achieves new relevance by pointing to Jesus. Following the law was never about following the law. Following the law was always about recognizing Jesus when he came. So brothers and sisters, Jesus has all authority to proclaim the teachings of God. Who He is the one who has all authority over all of creation. This Jesus who has this authority, he reaches out to touch his unclean creation and make them clean. The very thought that Jesus desires for the cleanliness and healing of his people, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news. Jesus wants to make you clean so that you can come before God. And when we come before Jesus, like the leper did, recognizing that we have no right to be in his presence, recognizing that we have no right to ask him for anything, uh, understanding that we are unclean, and asking, we are asking then the only pure human in the world to make us like him. When we come before him with the faith that he can do it, and when we come before him with the faith that he will do it, that is when we discover that Jesus desires to make us clean. He wants to make us whole. He wants to redeem us to God. And uh, I gotta be honest, I get really tired of hearing people talking about the gospel and making it all about us. Do you know how destructive it is to tell a person since childhood over and over that Jesus came and died for them because they're so stinking special? That the cross was a sign of how worthy you are of Jesus. That the cross is a sign of how much Jesus thought of you as an individual because you're so beautiful. That they should love themselves because Jesus loves them. Do you know how many times I was told that and never heard anything more about the gospel growing up? When that is our good news for others, we are cursing people to either a life of pride and arrogance that's based on a fantasy. You're not that good. You're not that lovely. You're not that clean. Or we are cursing them to a life of constantly working to convince themselves that somehow they are worth Jesus dying for them. Because they, they, are, they are honest enough to look at themselves and be like, there's no way I'm that special. Why do you keep telling me I'm that special? If that's what's in the Bible, how can I make myself that special? You're cursing them to pride or perfection. And those are twin curses that are not found in the gospel at all. They're bad news, not good news. 
One of the most popular songs that was on Christian radio while I was in high school was the song Someone Worth Dying For. And uh, it's based completely around this concept that we are lovely and seen by Christ because we are someone worth dying for and we're trying to convince ourselves to believe it. And the chorus of the song goes, am I more than flesh and bone? Am I really something beautiful? Yeah, I want to believe. I want to believe that. I'm not just some wandering soul that you don't see and you don't know. Yeah, I want to believe, Jesus helped me believe, that I am someone worth dying for. Now, I used to love that song. It was so therapeutic for me. It helped me to feel better about myself. But to be honest, the gospel is completely absent from that. Is it any wonder that the false gospel of our culture, of the secular culture around us, the false good news that they proclaim over and over, no matter where we go, whatever we watch, it's all over the place. Just wait for June to hit again, and we'll see that again. It's one that's based on radical individualism. Is it any wonder? This started with us and the ways that we said what the gospel was. And people took that and carried it outside of the church. And now all of a sudden we have radical individualism because of that. This, these phrases like, you do you. Love yourself. Express yourself. You're perfect exactly the way you are. Brothers and sisters, understand that no fallen sinful human was worth dying for. You are the leper. I am the leper, making everything we touch unclean. We're constantly reminded of our, we should be constantly reminded of our wretchedness and our need to be made clean. And that doesn't happen by embracing our filth like our nation encourages. It comes by being made clean by the healing touch of Jesus. The sin we so freely embraced destroyed the earth. It destroys our relationships with other people and it destroys our relationship with our creator. Jesus did not die because we were so lovely he couldn't live without us. Jesus died in order to make us lovely. There's a difference there. And our God is the one who came to us. He reached out his hand to us in our wretched state and through his healing touch, he made us clean. He made us lovely by taking our sin on his shoulders and giving to us his righteousness. Both parts of that, by the way, are vital for understanding the gospel. Not only that Jesus died for our sins, but also that he put on us his righteousness so that we can be perfect, like Matthew said in Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus gives us his righteousness so that we may be perfect and made clean. Jesus was the sacrifice that is able to make us clean. And he didn't do it unwillingly. Just as with the leper, Jesus tells us, my will is for you to be clean. So now I make you clean. So may we who are Christians walk faithfully in this truth that we are made clean by Christ, that we are made lovely by Christ. Let us reject all ideologies that tell us we can be made clean by embracing our filth. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, what's holding you back? What keeps you from freely kneeling before Christ, recognizing his lordship over your life and crying out, if you are willing, you can make me clean, Christ. Brother or sister, Christ is willing to make you clean. Be made clean by the power of Christ. Now, if anyone wishes to speak further about this, 
pull me aside after service. Let's talk, please. If you're realizing, maybe I don't, maybe I haven't understood the gospel properly. Maybe uh, it's been uh, wrong in my life, but I want to continue to understand and grow and learn these things. Pull me aside. Let's talk. Maybe you are overwhelmed by the weight of your uncleanness. And maybe we need to talk about whether you have repented of sin, if there's sin that needs to be repented of, and if uh, we need to bring this before the Lord together. Um, maybe you have need of prayer uh, in other areas as well. Uh, in the epistles of the New Testament, in the book of James, it says that if anyone's sick, come before the elders and ask for them to pray for you. And uh, I want to be able to do that for you. I, I believe that God heals people. When I, when I talk strongly about the people who are having these miracle crusades, it's not because I don't believe in miracles. It's not because I don't believe that God does heal people. It's because I know who Christ is. And they're misrepresenting them. And it, it disgusts me. And so if you want healing, if you need healing, come to me. Let's talk. Let's pray. I, I want to pray for you. I want to be able to do these things. I want to be able to talk with you about the things you're struggling with. I want to be able to talk with you if you are considering the possibility that you didn't understand the gospel. And that you want to know that you are saved. So let's talk. Uh, be bold. And come to tell me how I can shepherd you better. I want that. And with that, let's pray.